Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Let's get into this week's episode. Well, welcome everyone to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters, Women and Words. Bible translation, and why it's crucial. Welcome our guest with me, Dr. Philip Barton Payne, who has been part of CBE's translation project from the very beginning. Welcome, Phil. Thank you, Mimi. So let me tell you a little bit about Phil before he gets started. We've known him and worked beside him for decades, and he's always a delight and a source of encouragement and inspiration. Phil holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge, and he's taught New Testament in colleges like Cambridge University, Trinity Evangelical Theological Seminary, Gordon-Conwell, my alma mater, Bethel, and Fuller. He's an expert on women in the Bible and Codex Vaticanus. His books include Man and Woman, One in Christ, which I always use in my classes, Why Can't Women Do That?, forthcoming April 4, 2023, The Bible versus Biblical Womanhood, How God's Word Consistently Affirms Gender Equality. Phil and his wife, Nancy, were missionaries in Japan. They have three children and six grandchildren. They love the Lord as a family. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So Phil, uh, for those in our audience who do not know much about the Bible Translation Project. Can you introduce this project and tell us why it's important for English Bible readers? This project is aimed at asking the question, how can our translations more faithfully represent what the Bible teaches about man and woman? Uh, there are people like uh, Packer who, who have said, there's a masculine feel uh, to the Bible. Uh, but in fact, the masculine feel is often because a translation has put a masculine emphasis into the text where the text itself does not have that uh, emphasis. To give one example, the qualifications for elders and overseers and uh, in 1 Timothy and chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 uh, have uh, in many English translations uh, a dozen or more masculine pronouns added that are not in the text. Uh, the introduction to the passage, uh, whoever desires the office of overseer uh, desires a noble task, uh, is changed to whatever man desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But there is no man in the text. There is no he in the text. That makes a big difference in how people read the text. Yeah, and it's this kind of thing multiplied many times over in the Bible that makes it important that we have uh, an awareness of that a change in the text uh, that departs from what God revealed. Now, because what God revealed is important, uh, understanding that word, translating the word properly is absolutely crucial to the, to the life of the church. So uh, what we decided was to look at the key passages throughout the Bible and ask for each one uh, that relates to man and woman, 
how should this be translated? And instead of just having one person's opinion, have a whole team of scholars from the Old Testament and the New Testament address each of these passages and give their comments. So that the purpose is actually threefold. First, to let people know what the range of potential options in reading those texts are. And then out of that range, what makes the best sense of the text. Uh, and then uh, to give these resources to future Bible translators so they will do a better job of faithfully communicating what God has revealed. Wonderful. You know, Phil, could we go off script just for a few minutes? And can you give people, our wonderful audience, just about a three-minute description about how you became an egalitarian? Because that's just such a wonderful story. I've heard it a couple of times, and I could hear it ten more times. Well, I grew up in a church where all the leadership were male. And uh, I read translations that supported that. And when I went to Cambridge to begin my studies, I heard a lecture state that no passage in the New Testament properly understood in its original context limits the ministry of women. I almost stood up and shouted, that's not true. And I determined I will prove he is wrong. So I went home that night and I read 1 Timothy in Greek. And I noticed a bunch of things I'd never noticed before. So the next night I read it again. And the next night, for, for actually several months, and I finally concluded that almost every sentence in the letter relates to the first paragraph about the crucial problem of false teachers in the church in Ephesus. And chapter 5 has all of these statements about women who'd followed after Satan, who were going about from house to house, saying things they ought not, calling it foolish philosophy. And, and there's not a single statement in the entire letter where a man is identified as being deceived by these false teachers. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, it would make perfect sense for Paul to restrict the teaching of women. So this, the passage that I had understood as saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, uh, I realized uh, that in the context, you can't just assume that that is a permanent prohibition of all women in all times and all places. Now, furthermore, I realized that the translation is faulty uh, in the very verb itself. It's not, I do not permit, it's I am not permitting. Namely, in the current ongoing situation, this is what's not being permitted. Uh, secondly, the the verb translated to have authority of actually the very first instance where that verb does mean to have authority uh, is 300 years after Paul wrote. Uh, the first clear instance in all of Greek literature. In Paul's day, we have lots of examples of the verb meaning to seize authority that one does not rightfully have. And that's what these women were doing in Ephesus. They were going about from house to house, saying things they ought not. So Paul is, and furthermore, the conjunction that joins to teach and to seize authority is the one that Paul almost always uses to join two elements to convey a single idea. Mm -hmm. So he's prohibiting women from seizing authority to teach a man. 
Well, Priscilla, who's greeted in 2 Timothy, and who Luke identifies as having taught Apollos uh, in Acts 18.26, in the same city, Ephesus. Uh, where, she, where they planted a house church. Yeah, she, she would not be limited by this because she would not be seizing authority for herself because she had recognized teaching authority. So uh, that's how I got started. And it that led from one to another. And I found that in passage after passage after passage, I had misunderstood the scriptures. <laughs> and I had to admit I was wrong. Uh-huh. So that's how it happened. I didn't come to this in order to prove the egalitarian view. I came to disprove it. The scripture <laughs> changed my mind and changed my heart. Oh. And over time, I realized that it has huge practical implications. Right, right. Thank you, Phil. And I know that it took you, what did you say, 30 years to write your uh, tome? Well, the first one was uh, 35 years. It's been 50 years since I had that uh, experience. I, uh, experience in Cambridge uh, where I began this journey. Well, may the Lord bless your faithfulness. And and I know many who have been helped by you uh, are very happy for your continued devotion to the word of God. Speaking of which, could you share a few of the less complicated Bible translation recommendations that the New Testament team proposed that you have been very pleased with? Sure. Some things may be very small, but rather significant. For instance, in 1 Peter 2.18, we translate the word slaves as you who are enslaved in order to underscore that a slave's identity is in Christ. He or she may be enslaved, but is not fundamentally a slave, but a beloved member of Christ's body. Another example is in Ephesians chapter 5, We kept Ephesians 5.22 as part of the same sentence in Greek uh, that includes Ephesians Mm -hmm. 5.18-21. This is very important because 5.21 gives the context on which 22 is dependent. 5.21 says submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And then 5.22 continues, wives to your own husbands. Now, there is no verb submit in the Greek because it's taking the meaning from the prior part of the same sentence, which is submitting to one another, wives to your husbands. Well, that means it's in the context of submitting to one another that wives submit to their husbands And the rest of the passage goes on to speak of husbands submitting to their wives by loving them, giving for them, nourishing them, acting as Christ did, who gave himself up for uh, the church. That's beautiful. And it's just tragic how we separate verse 21 as its own paragraph, distinct from verse 22 in Ephesians 5. So... Yeah, so many, so many translations not only cut off the sentence in, in, the, in the middle of it so that you have a wives your own husbands with no verb, they put wives 
submit to your own husbands in a separate paragraph, even though the earliest manuscripts don't include the verb submit, the early church fathers almost always translate it without the verb submit. And the irony is that, that once the verb submit was first uh, first appears in any Greek manuscript of the New Testament, in Codex Sinaiticus, about 360 AD, there is not a single manuscript after that that removes the verb submit. Once it's in, no scribe ever took it out. So the, the explanation of some that oh, all of these earlier manuscripts that don't have the verb submit, they took it out. Well, that can't be the case because once it was in, no scribe ever did take it out. Mm. So why would all of these early church fathers and the early manuscripts remove it? Well, Phil, can you cite some of the church fathers uh, specifically by name? Say that again. Can you cite some of the early church fathers that you're that you're referring to by name? Oh yeah, uh, the well, first the manuscripts are Codex Vaticanus, written about three twenty five to three fifty. Uh, P46, written about 200 AD. In, in Ephesians 5, 23, uh, verse, verse 22, the, the inclusion of submit, uh, it's interesting that Jerome said that no Greek manuscripts include the verb submit. Uh, then you have uh, Clement of Alexandria, Ambrosiaster, uh, not including it. So you have this strong tradition. The United Bible Society's Greek New Testament says it is virtually certain that it was not in the original text. Mm. And I've actually gone back to the old Greek text before uh, P46 was discovered, mm. and almost all of them also conclude that submit was not in the original text. Oh, wow. Very good. Well done. Well done, Phil. We're thrilled to announce a brand new e-course titled Beyond Bias, aligning towards God's vision for women and men in Bible translation. For far too long, mistranslations of Bible verses have contributed to the inequality of women in Christian homes and churches, hindering the co-flourishing of women and men. This e-course aims to raise awareness of the significant role of Bible translation in restoring biblical equality in Christian communities. In this course, students will gain a basic understanding of Bible translation and guidance to identify the mistranslations of the Bible in the past and present, enabling them to choose women-friendly Bible versions for personal and ministry use. In addition to short articles, reflective questions, and prayers, Beyond Bias also offers fun quizzes and substantial supplemental resources gathered over 30 years of CBE's ministry. This e-course is for all Christians, regardless of their experience in biblical or theological training, who are open to exploring God's original intent for the equal partnership of women and men through a fresh reading of the Bible. We hope you'll join us on this important journey towards a faithful approach to God's Word. Head to cbe.today forward slash beyond bias to register and take the course. So, you know, I think you've talked about some of these vexatious passages, but in the work that you've been doing with CB's Bible translation team, what are some of the more troublesome translation issues the church continues to struggle with relative to the New Testament 
And how has the Bible translation team addressed that struggle? Well, one of the key questions, and probably the one on which we spent the most time so far, is how to translate the expression, uh, the son of man. In Greek, that's hohioth to anthropou. Anthropos is a Greek word for human. Uh, there's a separate word for man. Uh, and so the translation, the son of man, is an, a misrepresents that word in Greek. Whenever Jesus referred to himself, he never emphasized his masculinity by saying, I am an aner, a man. Uh, he always referred to himself as the son of anthropu. So I'm uh, the son of a, like the human son. So the second problem is we know that Jesus was born of a virgin and did not have a human father. So to say, that to translate this primary description that Jesus used to describe himself as the son of man uh, is misleading because he was not the son of a man. So how do you translate it? And what we came down with, I think, is a very good solution because it looks at the, the primary noun in the phrase is son. That is the, that's the nominative form, the subject form. Uh, and it's described as human. And so we translated it, the human son. And, and the expression is almost always in cases where Jesus' uh, authority is in view. And so you have the expression, the son of God, uh, and you have the human son of God. Uh, so it's, but the, the human son focuses on the humanity of the Son of God, who has that authority. That's wonderful. Uh, that was that was one of the the key issues. Um, another key issue is how do we translate the word head, uh, especially in First Corinthians eleven three and Ephesians five. Uh, many people have claimed that head means authority. Uh, in English, this is very natural because we speak of the head of the company. Well, the head of the company is the boss. He's the, the one with the authority. Um, in law, we speak of the head of the family and the responsibility that the husband has for the family. Uh, so in English, we have this strong tradition. But in Greek, if you look at Greek lexicons, even the most thorough lexicon, Liddell Scott Jones Mackenzie, which lists 49 metaphorical equivalence uh, for the word head, not a single one of them means authority, boss, leader, or anything related to them. Um, when you go to key uh, specialists in Greek literature, like Michael Wogodsky at Stanford, uh, they, they say that in Greek, the word kephale it does not mean leader or authority. Uh, if you look at Liddell Scott Jones McKenzie, it says that the meaning uh, authority is a Byzantine meaning. And if you look at the 12 volume Dimitriku, a Greek uh, lexicon, it has uh, the meaning uh, uh, medieval. This is a medieval meaning. So in both cases, uh, dictionaries that are 
detailed treatment of a vast amount of Greek literature uh, identify the meaning that in English is so easy to understand as one that came out in the Byzantine or medieval period. Uh, in contrast, if you look at Greek lexicons, dictionaries, uh, and ask, do they list the meaning source? There's a huge tradition of so many of them identifying the meaning source. So uh, you have this in the 12th century uh, uh, dictionary. There's a lexicographer from the 9th century, who Photius, who identifies the meaning source. And Liddell Scott Jones Mackenzie has half a dozen different uh, meanings related to source. So it's, it's, and furthermore, if you look in the literature of Paul's day, there are so many cases where you have the word head uh, conveying source. So Esau was the head of the people, the progenitor of the tribe. So it's defined in terms of he being the source of the tribe. Esau, of course, was dead and had no authority over the later tribe, but he was their source. Mm -hmm. You have uh, various aspects of uh, sin, uh, and taking one particular aspect of sin as the as the head of other sins. Well, it, it's a source of other sins. It doesn't control or have authority over other sins, but it's a source of them. Um, the probably the most commonly quoted metaphorical use of the word head uh, is documented first 350 BC, uh, Zeus the head, Zeus the middle, Zeus from whom all things come. So you have from whom all things come and the head, so the, the source meaning. And then there are all kinds of commentaries that explain head to mean source. Uh, when you go to the New Testament church fathers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, there is an enormous amount of support for the meaning source in the early church fathers. Now, I'll just read you one of them. Cyril of Alexandria says, uh, the source of man is the creator God. Thus we say, the head of every man is Christ, for man was made through him and brought into existence. And the head of woman is the man, because she was taken out of his flesh, and so indeed has him as her source. Similarly, the head of Christ is God, because he is from him according to nature. The word was begotten of the Father. Eusebius, Theodore Mopsuestia, Athanasius, Ambrosiaster, Cosmos and Duplistus, Photius, Theodoret, and Philek all explain head in 1 Corinthians 11.3 to mean source. And they not only say that it means source, they argue vehemently that it does not mean authority because that would put Christ under the Father. Mm -hmm. And that would be contrary to their belief. Okay. Well, thank you for that thorough explanation. Phil, can you please tell us uh, in just you know very a few minutes, why in your view have Bible translations failed to fairly and adequately represent the author's original intention? Is it simply our distance from the ancient writers or is it more 
the, uh, possibly just cultural assumptions that we have uh, post in the postmodern world? Oh my, uh, there. Uh, one factor is that Bible translation is inherently a conservative process when it's done by a team of translators. Because the translators begin with a translation and ask, should we change this? And unless a majority of the committee is convinced that the current translation is inadequate, uh, it's unlikely for the committee to recommend a change. Uh, I know this from personal experience uh, in our own committee, but also my father because he was the chairman of the final exegetical committee for the NIV text. And I remember uh, when I was with him and he would come home from those committee meetings and say, on these issues, uh, we did a wonderful job, but I could not get them to understand that this particular issue should be translated a different way. Uh, so the, there's a reluctance to change tradition. Uh, and that, that's just the nature of committee Bible translation. Part of it is simply ignorance. Uh, and the ignorance is often related to the power of gatekeepers. Uh, the, uh, the editor of the Evangelical Theological Society for decades would not permit any biblical article defending an egalitarian interpretation of, of scripture. And so readers of the Evangelical Theological Society uh, did not see that evidence. Gatekeepers can affect. Uh, the other thing related to that, when you have someone that a group of people trust intrinsically, and that person makes a statement, uh, people, even though they are told that he's wrong because they trust him. They, they don't believe the other view. For instance, uh, Wayne Grudem stated that all the Greek lexicons include the meaning authority and none include the meaning source. Well, it's almost the exact opposite of the truth, but because people heard it from a trusted source, they believed it. Uh, and uh, that is part of it. I think in some cases, there is a desire to protect personal privilege. And if you uh, are a man and you want your wife to do what you want, then to support a hierarchical structure where the man has the final say uh, is a, a strong, a compelling influence, even if someone doesn't isn't aware of that influence. Um, that, that is a, a huge uh, factor, which has, um, it can affect the most wonderful people. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, uh, my father uh, supported the equal standing of man and woman in the church. Uh, he argued from the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament professor. Uh, of all these women who were leaders like Deborah and Huldah. Um, but when it came to the family, uh, he thought of himself as the head of the family. And basically, he did uh, what he wanted. Um, 
because he loved my mother and our all the children dearly, uh, he would make wise decisions most of the time. And so it worked out pretty well. And we had wonderful adventures all around the world. Um, but I realized how important that is when we were in Japan and dad had been giving lectures throughout Asia and in India, in Taiwan, in Korea, the Philippines, and finally in Japan, dad wanted to climb Mount Fuji. So uh, the one day he could do it was the day we were moving, because my wife and I were missionaries in Japan, we were moving from Tokyo down to Kyoto. And that day it was raining and miserable. And mom said, dad, Barton, don't go. It's just terrible weather. And, and Dad said, um, I want to go. And I'm going to go. I've never climbed Mount Fuji. So he went. But when he was supposed to come back to Kyoto and meet us, he never arrived. So I contacted the seminaries where he'd been teaching. And students came to the Mount Fuji to look for him. Uh, finally, one, the lead uh, climber in the search party had a cramp. And at that point, the search party spread out, and it was there that they found Dad's body. Mm. And I had to carry my dad's body down Mount Fuji. Uh, mm. if, if he had submitted to his wife mm-hmm. and not gone, mm-hmm. he would not have died on Mount Fuji. Right. He was only 56 years old. Oh, goodness. And uh, it's such a terrible loss. He'd been yeah. the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Mm-hmm. He knew Hebrew and Greek so well that in devotions, I never heard him stumble over any word of Greek or Hebrew uh, twice a day as he would make fresh translations mm-hmm. of those passages. Mm-hmm. So it's a terrible loss. Mm-hmm. But you see, the the attitude that I have the final say, uh, that I have the authority in a way that the wife does not, mm-hmm. uh, it's destructive for mm-hmm. not just the family of the wife, but for, for the husband as well. Well, particularly if the woman or the, the person involved has uh, expert opinions, expertise, and that sort of thing, and you know, certainly watching weather and understanding the climate uh, and how it relates to individuals like your father that was a very wise observation she made and so thank you for that tender story from your own life thank you for joining us on part one of two of this mutuality matters episode with dr philip Payne. tune in again next week to hear from our other hosts and next month for part two with dr Payne on the women in words why bible translation matters thread check out the show notes for more information on dr Payne, and don't forget to head to cbe's website to read through our publications and other resources and connect with us on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin this is mutuality matters the opinions expressed in cbe's mutuality matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of cbe international or its members or chapters worldwide The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers.